Welcome to the Conversion Tracking Playbook, where we share how to overcome tracking challenges that e-commerce brands face today and real-world examples of transforming data into insights. Welcome back to another episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. I'm your co-host, Brad, and we have John here again today. And we have another special guest, Dr. Fu, who is a specialist in ad fraud and everything that's related to fraud protection and bot detection, which if you're listening to this, I know many, many customers of ours do listen, ensuring that you are not paying for fraudulent clicks or views or ultimately just maximizing your campaign budget is very, very critical to you today. So I'm excited for this combo. Dr. Phil, I'll hand it off to you to do a quick intro and then John will uh, will dive right into the topic. So actually, before we get into the intro, I just want to do a quick rundown of what we'll be going through today. So we'll be going through the different types of advertising that typically fraud is most prevalent in, defining what ad fraud is, where it becomes a problem, how does fraud detection work, everything in the world of fraud and advertising and, and digital marketing. So just so everyone's listening knows what we'll be getting into today. A little bit different than the normal, you know, GA4 server side tracking, Google ads that we've been talking about a lot recently, but very relevant nonetheless. So, Dr. Fu, I'll hand it off to you for a quick intro. Thank you, Brad. Glad to be here with you and John. My name is Augustin Fu. I've been doing digital marketing for almost 30 years here in New York. And for the last 10 years, I've been studying the problem of ad fraud. And most of you would recognize that as bots causing ads to load or bots clicking on your search ads and things like that. So today we'll kind of get into that. For a little more on my background, I have spent time with uh, agencies. So on the agency side at Omnicom and IPG. And then prior to that, on the client side at American Express. But uh, for the most part, I've gotten back to my own consulting and really focused on the problem of bot fraud and click fraud and things like that these days. Great. Let's frame this conversation by first going through the different types of ads and maybe what this conversation applies to and what it doesn't. Because even just when we started talking, there's some lingo that I don't think everybody's going to be totally clear on. So maybe we could define the ads that you mentioned and exactly what defines programmatic advertising. All right. Programmatic ads are basically the display and video ads that are purchased using real-time bidding. So you've heard the term RTB. So it's very similar to high-frequency trading on Wall Street, where buyers and sellers of shares of stock are literally bidding on every share. So here, buyers and sellers of ad impressions are literally bidding on every ad impression. So when an ad opportunity comes up, so you think about a web page like New York Times, there might be three or four ad slots on that page. When that page gets loaded by a person visiting the site, each ad slot would make a call out and say, who wants to bid on me? Right? So that's called a bid request. And then a whole bunch of advertisers would bid for the right to put an ad into that ad slot. So that's what real-time bidding is. Uh, so it's a ton of computation. It's a ton of bandwidth because, you know, usually many, many dozens of advertisers try to bid on that. And it's sent out to two dozen ad exchanges. So you can see how that multiplies the amount of bandwidth and computation. But, you know, at the end of it, uh, one advertiser would have won the bid and then they have the right to serve an ad into that ad slot. So, for example, the publisher in New York Times won't even know what ad is actually going into that slot until it actually goes into that slot. So that's programmatic advertising. It's really become the dominant form of media buying in the last 10 years or so. 
because the largest of advertisers would have put billions and billions of dollars into buying these kinds of ads, and they're buying trillions upon trillions of ad impressions. So that's programmatic ads. Uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with search ads, right? That those are typically called CPC or cost per click. Someone types in a search on Google, and then some of the results are organic results, but at the top, you usually see some paid search results. So then when you click on that, the advertiser pays on a cost per click basis. So those are by far the two dominant forms of digital ads. So I think we're going to focus on those two for now or for the purposes of this conversation, because those two display and video ads and search ads represent almost 90% of the digital spend. So, you know, in my work, I can see most of the bad guys go where the money is, right? So they're going to focus their attention on stealing from these two largest buckets. Okay, that helps. Will the rest of this conversation apply to all the traditional ad channels like Google Ads and TikTok and Facebook? So think of those as variations, right? So on TikTok, it's either a display or video ad. So it's very similar to programmatic ads. On Google and Bing, those are search ads. When you think about Facebook, it's mainly going to be display ads. So I'm talking more about the revenue model. There's many channels where you can do display ads, but I'm talking about the revenue model, whether it's paid on a CPM basis, cost per thousand basis, and the types of fraud there are the bots just causing more impressions because they get paid more when there's simply more impressions. And then the second business model is cost per click. So the bot will do the thing that they get paid for, right? So the advertiser is paying on a click basis the bots will have to click it in order for them to make the money fraudulently. So that's why I tend to focus on CPM versus CPC and you know the revenue model as opposed to the specific channel. But there are nuances between channels. We can get into that if that comes up in conversation. Sure. Okay. So I think we kind of just did, but maybe we can formally define what ad fraud is in both those contexts. So put simply, the... Bad guys are helping sites inflate their traffic, right? So just imagine a long tail site. Nobody even knows it's there, right? Or very, very few people know it's there. So they're not getting enough traffic. So what do you do? You go out and buy some traffic because literally if you Google it right this second, there are hundreds and hundreds of vendors ready to sell you traffic for your website just like they're ready to sell you views for your YouTube channel or likes for your Instagram or followers for your Twitter, right? So all of those are forms of fraud where they are deliberately inflating the traffic and therefore the ad impressions for profit, okay? So in those cases, the reason it's fraud is because the advertiser buying ads doesn't know that those ads aren't shown to people, right? They're being caused to load by bot activity and the clicks are as well. So that's why we call it fraud. And it's so rampant because the automated technologies that make it happen and the giant botnets are so vast that uh, a large, large portion of the activity that we're seeing in social and online and all that kind of stuff are automated, not human activity. So there's a large, large portion of fraud out there. So you just have to be kind of vigilant about that. Okay, thanks. So... I was reading some of your content and I saw that the price of CPMs has gone from about $30 to $3 over the last, was that 10 years or so? Is that roughly right? Yeah. So in the last 10 years, that's been the kind of the acceleration of uh, programmatic ad buying taking hold, right? So prior to that, 
advertisers would go to large portals or large publishers, right? So large portals, I mean Yahoo, like 20 years ago. And then large publishers like a New York Times or a Gizmodo or Engadget or TechCrunch or whatever, and they would buy ads from those publishers. But about 10 years ago, so 2012, 2013, that's when buying ads through programmatic exchanges became the dominant way of buying ads. So since then, we've seen an acceleration in the decline in CPMs. That happened even though we were shifting vast sums of ad dollars into digital from other channels like TV and print, right? So the last 10 years, more and more advertisers shifted more budget to digital because they wanted to be innovative. They wanted to go where the audience is. So even though we've seen a dramatic increase in demand, right? So more and more advertisers wanted more ads to buy you would normally think in like an economic 101, economics 101 scenario, if there's more demand and there's finite supply, the prices should go up. But instead, we've seen prices go down for the last 10 years, right? How is that possible? The reason it happened is that supply grew even faster than the demand. And that supply certainly didn't come from human audiences exploding a thousand times what it previously was. Human audiences don't grow that fast. In fact, they've been contracting for years and years because humans have other things to do now. So instead of going to magazine websites, they're now spending time on social media. They're on their phones. They're not going to websites as much anymore. So the amount of traffic to mainstream publisher sites have actually declined, not increased. But yet, magically, we now see a thousand, ten thousand, a million times more traffic, you know, human activity or supposed activity on sites and mobile apps and CTV and everything else, right? So the quantities just don't match with reality. So in that case, uh, your observation that CPMs have declined for ten years is because the amount of supply has vastly outstripped the amount of demand, despite the billions of dollars coming in from other channels. So that's kind of one macroeconomic indicator that there's something else going on, right? Obviously, from my work, it's bot activity, but other people you know, really refuse to believe that because they've been happily buying larger and larger quantities of ad impressions for 10 years. Okay. So is this problem roughly 10 years old, or is it much older, but it just started ramping up 10 years ago? It is much older, right? So since the beginning of digital advertising, right? So if you own a website and you didn't have enough traffic, I mean, back then you would just repeatedly load your own website in a browser, right? To get more traffic. Guilty, guilty, uh, definitely guilty of that 15 years ago to try to pump up my AdSense revenue. And I sent it to all my family. I literally, I'm not joking. I remember sending an email saying, yeah, click refresh, click refresh. Yeah. Can everyone go visit this page and re- go refresh it every day? <laughs> busted. Yeah, but I mean, now the the bad guys, uh, there's way more automated means. And you can imagine the vast botnets, right? They can generate so much traffic to overwhelm Google's website or Twitter, right? That amount of traffic, right? The traffic fire hose, we like to call it. If you point that to a website that actually carries ads, that could generate enormous numbers of ad impressions. So that's a much more lucrative use of that botnet. So you can almost imagine when each of these smaller websites uh, need traffic, they're essentially renting time on that big botnet, right? Those botnets already exist, but they're basically selling time on that botnet. So this website can say, I need 10 million page views. Please send me 10 million page views. And then the botnet will faithfully execute that. I mean, common sense will tell you there's not a whole bunch of humans sitting around with nothing to do to go hit your website 10 million times. 
it literally can't happen in the physical world. Okay, so all of this is automated activity, not human activity. I, I got to ask a question, which I think is next, John, but how do you detect fraudulent bot activity through, if let's start with a CPM example, so bots that are inflating impressions. How do you uh, detect that in a, like what confidence level, greater than 80% confidence, 90% confidence, but yeah, I'll just tee that question up for you. It's really much more deterministic and precise than that. It doesn't have to be a probability that it's a bot or not, right? There's certain things that are so simple that, you know, literally if you look at the data, you can tell. I mean, some of the early stuff that people are still seeing in their own Google Analytics is, why are we getting all these clicks that are 100% bounce rate, zero time on site, or some other characteristic, right? So you'll, you'll notice some of those kinds of characteristics. The other simple thing would be, you know, how's this person hitting a deep page, right? Meaning a huge long URL. Nobody types in a huge long URL. They might type in the domain, right? Like uh, newyorktimes.com, nytimes.com, but they're not going to type in the whole article page, right? The huge long URL. So in the past, people have just attributed that to, oh, people bookmarked that. Uh, no, there's not millions of people who bookmarked it when the article just came out a minute ago, for example, okay? So those are some obvious things you can see in your own Google Analytics to tell you that that can't be human activity. And then the bots sometimes get greedy. So they're going to try to load as many pages as fast as possible. So you're starting to see, oh, well, how, how is this one user loading a thousand pages in a minute? A human can't physically do that. So there's some very, very easy things you can, you can see if you actually looked. Then there's a little more sophisticated stuff where sometimes you can look at the user agent, meaning the browser, and the bot makers might make mistakes. So they misspelled something. Or in some cases, they may even be declared bots, right? They'll tell you they're bots because some crawlers are actually not nefarious. They're just there to do their job. So Google crawler, like Google bot, is declared as Google bot. So you can actually see that in their names. Not everyone does that. And obviously, the bad guys will have an incentive to disguise their bots so they're going to just call it Chrome or Safari or whatever, right? So that makes it a little bit harder. So then, you know, in the last 10 years, what I've seen is it, you can literally think of it as an arms race, right? It's good guys tech versus bad guys tech. But the problem is the bad guys will always have the upper hand. The good guys are always going to be catching up because, you know, the bad guys can start committing some new form of fraud that the good guys don't even know to, what to look for, Right. So this is starting to get similar to what we're observing in cybersecurity issues, right? Where you hear these things called zero days, which is literally, that means the first day that we discovered a fraud scheme or some kind of cybersecurity breach that has been ongoing for years, we just simply didn't know it was there. So there's many of that kind of phenomenon where we're starting to detect more and more of that. But the bad guys will be actively disguising their bot activity, trying to hide the fraud and, you know, stay undetected so that they can keep making money for as long as possible. So some of the things they do is block the detection tags. So, for example, just like humans block ads, because we know these are the ad serving domains, the bots are very adept at blocking detection tags, specifically from the legacy fraud verification companies. So when they see a double verify tag, they block it. When they see a moat tag, they block it. When they see an integral ad science tag, they block it. So when these companies' tags are blocked, they get no data, and therefore they can't mark that bot as a bot. So when you look back at some of their historic data, they're always reporting 1% or less fraud or IVT. You know, most people just assume that that meant that there was only 1% fraud. That actually should mean, you should understand that to mean, 
that that's all the fraud that they could catch, not that that's all the fraud there is. So a lot of people have wrongly assumed that fraud is low and under control, including the trade associations. Right. So here in the U.S., the Association of National Advertisers have put out six years of press releases based on those incorrect numbers. Right. They keep repeating those numbers and keep saying fraud is less than one percent. Don't worry about it. Right. And that's why I've spent my time and my work and I have my own tools, technology tools to go look for those bots that are being missed by the legacy fraud verification companies. And people are kind of their minds are at ease right now because they keep hearing that fraud is low. Don't worry about it. But in fact, they should be at their highest alert. Right. They should be the most vigilant now because we've never seen as much bot activity as we're seeing right now. And I think there's a couple different categories of fraud detection, right? There's the ones that you mentioned. Then there's also, you know, the ones you see on Instagram advertising to you for fraud detection that you didn't name, maybe like newer school versions of fraud detection. Is there any fraud detection that's okay out there? Or are you saying it's all pretty easy? You block their script, they can't detect it, and it's kind of game over for the fraud detection. One of the main problems is that they don't tell you what portion of the data they did measure and what portion of the data they could not measure. Okay, so that's a big challenge. So I have my own tools. I gave it a name two years ago in 2020, three years ago now, called it Foo Analytics. And I think of it as an analytics platform, not just a fraud detection platform, because one of the key things you need to do is figure out what to act on afterwards, right? It doesn't do you any good to know it's this percent fraud or that percent fraud, right? That's more like a sports score or something. Oh, yay, we got you know less fraud or more fraud. You can't really do anything about it. So with an analytics platform, what we're looking for is obviously we're looking for the fraud and the bots and where they come from. But there's other things that are not fraud related, but that could tell you something is wrong with your campaign. So, for example, when we measure the ads and we see that most of the ads are loaded between midnight and 4 a.m., that's not going to do you much good because most people are sleeping then, right? So your ads are not being shown to humans. So simply by having hourly detail in the analytics, we can say, well, why are your ads all used up in the overnight hours when humans are sleeping? And then you have none left for the waking hours when they're actually online. So again, that's not a form of fraud. That's a, something that analytics can do for you so that you can study your own campaigns. But ultimately, when we're talking about fraud, we can actually see where the bots are coming from. Right? So there's usually a click-through, and we can actually see, oh, it came from a Google campaign, or it came from a click-through from this website. When we start seeing that level of detail, then we can go back into our campaigns and start blocking those sites, because right? we don't want that traffic. You know, we're paying for bot clicks and it's not doing anything for us because they're not going to convert anyway. So you see how it's, it's multiple layers and there may be some good fraud detection companies out there that are new that could detect it better. But given the amount of snake oil and smoke and mirrors that I've seen over the last 10 years, my first assessment is, okay, they're not going to be that good until they can actually prove to you that they can catch some fraud. And I'm happy to assess any of those or do measurement against any of those to see if uh, if they're actually catching the majority of the fraud. For people who haven't seen some of your charts on LinkedIn, you just mentioned the stat of 1%. That's what's being claimed. But it's very, very dramatically different than that in some of the stuff I've seen from you. Can you talk a little bit about, I don't know, some examples, maybe not worst case scenarios, but what you see in terms of percentage from these channels that's fraudulent? 
it could be night and day. So I'm going to just kind of bracket it for you. Okay. So when you're running a campaign on Facebook and you don't turn off Facebook audience network, you could be seeing dramatic levels of fraud because the sites and apps that belong to FAN, so they're outside the main property, but they're using Facebook's network to run the ads. They have both the motive and the means to commit fraud, lots of it. Right. So if you don't turn those off, you're going to see lots and lots of bot clicks coming through. And I can tell you there's a small business owner uh, who contacted me more than five years ago. So he was doing Facebook advertising himself, and he was selling music and merchandise on his own website. So for a five-year period, at the beginning, it was working pretty well. right? But over time, he said, it's starting to get worse and worse and worse, even though he was buying more and more ads and they were getting cheaper and cheaper. And he was even getting more clicks, but his sales were going down, right? So he tried to solve it himself for five years, but was pulling his hair out and said, can't figure this out. You know, let me call someone. So he called me up. And first thing I asked him was, is the Facebook audience network checkbox checked or not checked, right? It's checked by default because Facebook wants you to buy all those ads because it generates enormous volumes, right? And lots of clicks. So he said, it's checked. I said, why don't you turn that off and you know, call me back in a week. And basically, once he unchecked that, he saw that his numbers of impressions went way, way down. Number of clicks went way, way down. And his cost per click and cost CPMs went way up, right? So he said, what the heck's going on? But ultimately, he saw his sales come back because the vast majority of the clicks that he was getting from Facebook Audience Network were not real. And those were not converting anyway. So it it basically generated large numbers and it made the average costs seem to be a lot lower than they should be simply because the denominator is much larger now. So those are examples where, you know, if you're running on Facebook, make sure you turn off FAN. If you're running on Google, make sure you turn off search partners so that your ads stay on the main property, google.com, because humans Google things, right? So there's still going to be human audiences going there. So make sure if you're running search ads, just keep it on the main property. And then, you know, again, parallel after parallel, same thing with TikTok, right? If you're running ads on TikTok, you want it to stay on the main app. We've seen campaigns where 99% of the ads did not run on TikTok itself, even though the advertiser was buying the campaign through TikTok. They have something called Pangle, which is their audience network, which are thousands of other apps that are you know using the TikTok railroad tracks to run ads all of those are just committing outright fraud so even if you're getting you know billions of views right so it just ticks me off when i see a big advertiser send out a press release saying we got 6 billion views on our TikTok campaign in the first day okay there's only 7 billion humans on earth so i don't think 6 billion people saw your ad in the first day so some of those numbers, when they're just quoting you know, these quantity metrics, they're just addicted to those large numbers. But the vast majority of that is automated behaviors, not humans looking at it. Right? So again, on TikTok, if you want to run ads on TikTok, make sure you turn off Pangle so that the ads stay on the main app, TikTok itself. So then there's a reasonable chance that some of those ads are actually seen by humans. Okay, so again, I'm just kind of bracketing it. There's best practices. You know, clearly some of these things work. It's not to say to turn it all off, but you should be going for business outcomes, not for quantities of impressions or quantities of clicks, because all of those metrics can be easily gamed by bot activity and fraudulent practices.
So it seems the one immediate action item for anyone listening, whether they're a marketer or a brand, is when you're going through getting ready to launch our new Facebook campaign, ad set, et cetera, is turn off the display network edition. So it gives you, do you want to be in a reel? Do you want to be you know, these positions, but turn off the display network options? And that would be Facebook, Google, TikTok, et cetera. Yeah, on, on any of those, what they call walled gardens or whatever, just make sure you turn off the stuff that's outside of the main property, right? You want to advertise on Google, that's fine. Because search partners is where the majority of the fraud is. Uh, you want to advertise on Facebook itself, right? People are logged into Facebook all day long. They're logged into Instagram, WhatsApp all day long. That's where you want to show your ads, not on any outside app or site. Yeah, you know, I think, John, you have this teed up on our doc as next. That was where my question was going to be. If someone's listening and they say, okay, great, we don't have 1% bot traffic, we have 30%, like the so what? Like, what do I do with that? Uh, how do I take action on that? I'd love to hear some insights like the one we just chatted about, but anything else, what does a brand do if they suddenly wake up tomorrow like, okay, 30% of our ad spend is fraudulent? You know, sometimes it's kind of scary to take a look, but, you know, my recommendation to advertisers, it's better to look now than later because the longer you don't look, the longer you're going to be wasting your money. Okay, So it could be a scary 30%. It could be a scary 50% or even 90%, but it's not cause for panic because now that you have better data and you have more detailed data, you know which sites and apps to go add to the block list. Okay, So if you're that advertiser that has 90% fraud, Again, don't panic. We can't clean that up overnight. What we have to do is approach it with what I'm going to call a kind of progressive cleaning schedule, if you will. So there could be thousands upon thousands of sites that are fraudulent. There are. And these are now in your campaign because you bought on the open web and all that kind of stuff, right? There's, there's many ways they can get into your campaigns. You don't need to take out 10,000 sites or apps at once, right? You just need to take out 10 the top 10 that are eating up the majority of your impressions, right? Because sometimes these fraudulent apps are so enormous that they can be eating up 10% of your impressions or 20% of your impressions. Those are the ones you need to take out first because that has the greatest impact, right? So basically what I advise to the largest of advertisers is every week, let's take out 10 to 20 of the most egregious bad guys first. And then every week, just keep doing that. And then that's how you progressively clean your campaign and make it better. So that way, it's really like talking them off the ledge, right? It's way too scary for them to say, wow, my campaign is 90% fraud. I'm paralyzed. I don't know what to do, right? So don't worry. Let's just progressively clean it. And it's not even your fault because the tools that were used before, the legacy fraud verification companies, they told you it was 1% fraud. So you wouldn't do anything, right? If it's so clean, it's only 1% fraud, why would you do anything? But now that you have better data and you have more details, you can do something. Yeah. So it's really about you know upgrading your tools. If you can see better, you can do better, You know, putting it simply. And again, you don't have to use my platform. You just go look at your own Google Analytics and just look for things that seem strange, that don't make any sense to you and start cleaning up that way. Foo Analytics is free for most small and medium businesses. I don't even charge for it unless it's a big advertiser doing a billion impressions per month. So anyone who wants to use it, uh, they're welcome to use it. Just install it on the site like Google Analytics, copy and paste. And then you can start to use it. I can show you how you know you guys can help all of your customers kind of look through the data and say, let's take out these obvious bad guys first. Right? And that way you progressively clean it and make all the campaigns better. 
So just to summarize for for myself more than anyone here, it really is just looking at, okay, we just need a little bit of a sharper lens into the traffic. So where's it coming from? So the referrer, what are the key metrics associated with that referrer? So 100% bounce rate, no time on page, because that means there's only been one hit that GA has received. Probably other metrics that we don't need, necessarily need to go in detail on, but essentially look at that a little bit more of a, a deeper analysis on, okay, it looks like these 10 these 10 referring domains, which may or may not be visible in GA if they're doing a custom source medium override just to try to spoof it. But that's essentially what you're saying. Okay, we're going to take those 10 domains and we're going to block them in Google Ads where we don't want any ad impressions or you know, whatever else you might do in different networks besides Google. Is that about right? Yeah, so basically, like I said before, you could either turn off all of search partners, right? And that way you'll reduce or avoid 90% of the fraud. But if you can't do that, then yes, we have to go back and, and look through you know, where the click fraud is coming from. So we then go block those domains. But beyond GA, right, a lot of that you can do yourself in Google Analytics. What Foo Analytics does on top of that, right, we typically run next to GA, not in place of. Because GA, a lot of people are very used to that. So you know, focus on that and keep using it. But Foo Analytics layers on top the bot labeling. Right. So Google Analytics does filter some bot traffic because they're required to by the IAB. Now, most of those bots are the ones that declare themselves. So if they see Googlebot or Bingbot or any of the named crawlers, they are usually pretty good at filtering that out. The problem is they don't tell you what was filtered and how much was filtered. Right. So then you're left with a discrepancy in GA that you can't explain. And very often that manifests itself in the discrepancy between the clicks that your ad platform is telling you you got and the number of page views you see in your own GA. And in that previous example that I cited, he was noticing a 90% discrepancy, right? So using round numbers, the Facebook platform was telling him he got 100,000 clicks, but his own GA was reporting he was only getting 10,000 arrivals on his site. So again, look for those kinds of things. If you're seeing a greater than 10% discrepancy, something's going on. So then when you put Foo Analytics on the site, in addition to your GA, what we're doing is we're labeling the bots and not discarding any of it, right? So then we can tell you which bots they were, where they're coming from, and even which campaign or, or channel they're coming from. Once you can see that, then you know which channel to go troubleshoot, right? If very few bots are coming from Google paid search, you're fine. You don't have to go troubleshoot that. But if a large number of bots are coming from your TikTok campaign, then go do something about it, right? You then go turn off Pangle or something, right? Then you know exactly what to do. That's how you figure out what to troubleshoot, where you need to troubleshoot and that kind of stuff. If I had a dollar for every time I was asked why Facebook clicks don't match sessions in GA, I probably wouldn't be on this podcast right now. <laughs> yeah, that question is the impossible question to answer, but I'm just going to send them your way uh, going forward and we get that. We'll just set up a... Well, let's go help them together. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, my company is a one-person company and it's been that <laughs> way for 25 years. So I'm very happy to do the research and you know, I don't want to build an operating company around this, right? So I'm going to continue yeah. building through analytics. And if you compare this to any of the other fraud verification companies, I will still be tuning the algorithm. I don't know when was the last time their algorithms have been updated to account for the bots being more sophisticated, but I'm going to keep doing that job. But you guys are free to use that. And let's go together, help all the Shopify owners, right, site owners, troubleshoot as we see those cases come up. Not everyone's going to have a problem, but of those who have a burning issue, let's go help them troubleshoot 
And it's really a simple matter. You know, the Shopify place, you can just add a tag again by copy and paste. Mm-hmm. So whoever's interested, we can create accounts for you and them. And then, you know, we can look at the data together. And I think we can pretty quickly figure out what's going on and help them troubleshoot those things. Yeah. John, I certainly feel like it's a problem that majority of folks don't necessarily talk about or even know about for reasons that you outlined already, Dr. Fu. But if someone is spending a million dollars a month, which many customers are in advertising, if they are able to cut CPM costs by whatever the percentage point, I mean, it's going to be meaningful just by taking some of these quick tips that is potentially in the larger macroeconomic environment that we're in. It might be something that the CFOs out there that get hands-on or might like that approach. But John, what do you, what, what's your sense just hearing some of the quick tips that someone could handle, maybe get into the question around cutting channels that you ultimately can't prove out and fix and how that might weigh into attribution software that might say otherwise for that channel. But John, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I think there must be some weird psychology at play here because it sounds like when you start cutting the bad traffic, your CPMs or CPC goes up, right? Which people don't don't like that. But the end result, and not in lockstep, I assume, is that somewhere we can measure this impact, right? Whether it's in the conversion rate of the advertising or in the return on the ad spend or like where does it show up if we go and start fixing this stuff? It's really in the cost per acquisition or cost per outcome. Right now, people are too fixated on just the CPM costs or the CPC costs, but they're not sufficiently fixated on the outcomes. You know, here's one other nuance that most people don't really think about. Some of those outcomes, meaning those conversions or sales, would have happened anyway without the click or without the paid media. I'll send you an article later. There's a great case study by Brian Porter. They're one of the largest glassware sellers on Amazon. What he noticed was that, you know, they were spending $10 million a month in media on Amazon. But what he was noticing after he turned it off was that a lot of those people were just accidentally clicking on the ad instead of on the organic result on their way to purchase. They were already going to buy it. But when they did a search for that particular glassware brand, the first thing that shows up is an ad, not the organic result. So they end up being lazy and just clicking on the ad. So it almost kind of reinforces, you know, you see what you want to see. And it's, wow, the ads are working so well. What you don't see is that that person was literally one click away from buying it because they were on the way to buy it. They just happened to click on your ad, not the organic result. So in that sense, if you don't understand the context around your analytics, you may just assume that it's working super well when you could have literally saved all that cost. So when this particular glassware manufacturer, when they turned off their ad spend on Amazon, all the sales continued. There are some of those kind of things that we can start getting into where the cost per click itself or the CPM that you're paying, yeah, that's going to go up. But if you're still getting more sales, if you then calculate the number of sales or the dollar amount that you're getting out of those sales divided by the cost, that should still get better for you. So I think over time, hopefully more and more of the Shopify sellers understand that it's better to focus on business outcomes because then you're not in that trap of the vanity metrics. Oh, we got lower prices. Okay, but you know that didn't mean that you got more business outcomes or sales. That's the more important thing to focus on. So I kind of lump those in with vanity metrics. It's like, oh, yeah, we got discount prices, kind of like we shopped at Costco or something. But you know, those don't necessarily translate into better outcomes or better sales. So next steps for people who are interested in figuring out how this is affecting them, they install Foo Analytics. 
Is it just a script? Do they need to sign up? You said they get a free account. I'm assuming they need to sign up on the site. Yeah, what I'll do is let's go do a few of these examples for your customers. I'll set up an account for each of them so they can log in and see. You guys will kind of have a master account because you're helping them with the GA anyway. So you guys can look across all those accounts. And then when we have five to 10 signed up and we have a week's worth of data, let's go review those together because then we can very quickly pick out the problems and troubleshoot. In fact, if we have 10 to 15 or 20 of these at the same time, you guys might even be able to write a tutorial to say, we're seeing these common features, right? We don't even have to name any of them. You know, like in my writing, I've been writing about the phenomenon of fraud, not the names of the companies. You know, we don't need to embarrass anybody. We're just lumping everything together and say, look, this is a common problem that 15 out of 20 of the Shopify merchants are facing. They're all facing the same thing. So let's talk about the phenomenon. Let's talk about the actual steps that they can take to mitigate it. And that's going to be a win for everybody, including all of your Shopify customers. I can't imagine there's anybody listening to this podcast who'd be interested in doing this. What do you think, Brad? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we'll get a few takers. Yep. Yeah. Anything to uh, lower cost per acquisition while maintaining spend would, I would say that's a huge, huge win. I was just keeping track of a few random questions as you're going through the conversation. So just on our marketing site, we use Cloudflare. They have this, you know, the under attack setting, which is kind of like their DDoS attack setting. Are there any solutions out there that you know of, like that under attack where it requires you to, I don't, there's some sort of authentication. Sometimes you have to do the CAPTCHA or, or that's probably more sophisticated today. But does anything like that exist out there that would help block all bot activity, even though it's a potentially poor user experience and you're likely to impact just your general site conversion metrics? The Cloudflare stuff is by far the best stuff out there. They are network specialists, so I would recommend putting that in front of everything. But let me let me be a little more clear on that. They are very very good at preventing DDoS attacks, DDoS attacks, because there you can literally see the volumes of traffic coming to your site by, you know, the millions or the billions, right? Now, there's very little incentive for attackers to attack a small Shopify site, right? They don't make any money from doing that. But yet, if you have Cloudflare DDoS protection in front, it's going to help mitigate that. So that just reduces your risk of being attacked. The other thing that they have is the managed capture. I think there's a newer name for that. But basically, they don't throw a capture unless they really, really have to. So Cloudflare has a sufficient network visibility to say, we know these are bots because we've seen them before in other places. So that's why I'm saying by far the best solution out there for those kind of bots would be Cloudflare. However, the bots can be more sophisticated than that. And they will be in certain cases. Remember the recent case of Taylor Swift? She had a concert and then within the first 15 minutes, all of her tickets were basically bought up by bots. Yeah. Those bots are scalper bots. They buy up those tickets so that the bad guys can resell those tickets on the aftermarket for five times the money. So in those cases, they got around all of the bot prevention, detection, all that kind of stuff. So there are the really advanced kind that, you know, if the bad guys pay enough for those bots, they can fill in the forms, they can type in credit card numbers, they can complete the purchase, right? Do all of that kind of stuff. But I think in most of your cases, they're not going to be using that kind of bots because there's no advantage for them to make a false purchase on one of your Shopify sites. So there's no universal solution that can block all the bots because it just depends on what kinds of bots you're dealing with, right? I've seen all kinds from the most basic that you can block based on an IP address 
or the ones that tell you they're a bot, right? Because they declare themselves in their user agent. I'm a headless Chrome or I'm a crawler bot or something, right? So those are very easy to block. Yeah. But uh, there are others where they'll even fake the mouse movement. They'll fake the clicks, right? So it's even hard for my platform to detect. Yeah. But again, you use some common sense and use some business judgment. You should be able to pick out most of those. The point is having the right analytics in place so that you can see those happening. So in theory, with this real life example, last week we had a massive spike. It was like a thousand X spike in requests. Our site basically went down, had to turn on the Cloudflare under attack mode. Just going into looking at some of our Facebook ads. Unfortunately, they have the audience network enabled. So in theory, if those ads were placed on these other sites and those sites were trying to drive up CPMs or just trying to make money. In theory, that is a plausible explanation, not saying it's the real explanation, but plausible of whatever sites our ads were being hosted on, their bots were just attacking it, trying to make their money. And unfortunately, we were one of the ad placements shown and just was driving a lot of bot activity, which again, spikes the requests, burns our budget. And so that's where the other company contacted me right after that. Facebook called it a glitch, right? A software glitch. But you're right. It's like, those companies who basically are driving false traffic to those apps and sites outside of Facebook, they can just tune that up and tune it down at will, right? So if they need more ad revenue, they just turn up the bot traffic. So that translates into it burning through your budget, right? You saw that on the other end because you were advertiser and you didn't turn off FAN. It's way, way harder. And there's no incentive for them to do that when the ad runs on Facebook itself because Facebook makes the money. So unless Facebook is doing that kind of fraud, you won't be affected by that kind of thousand X spike. But if your ads are running on stuff outside of Facebook, that certainly can happen again. You see what I'm saying? So you can significantly reduce your risk and reduce your exposure to at least 90% of the fraud by leaving your ads only on Facebook and turning off FAN. Awesome. Well, John or Dr. Fu, anything we left out that you wanted to cover today? I think we covered a lot. So, you know, hopefully let's get some trials going and, you know, let's look at data together because, you know, if we see five and it's pretty much the same thing, if we see 10, it's pretty much the same thing. We can go roll this out to the rest of your customers and really significantly help them. Just stop wasting the money. It's not their fault, but prior tools just didn't show them enough details for them to do anything about it. So now let's go help them make it a lot better over time. Love it. Thanks for doing this research. It's pretty interesting stuff and I have never seen this anywhere else. So appreciate you digging so deep. And I'm glad you guys are looking because I, I've had tremendous pushback, right? You can imagine the big agencies that serve PNG. They're trying to help PNG spend $2 billion in digital. They don't need to spend $2 billion in digital every year, but the agencies want them to because they want to make the money off of a share of that, right? So they're just buying complete crap. They're going to all these small networks like, oh, can you sell me a billion impressions? No, they can't sell you a billion impressions. They can if they just made it up with bot activity. So, you know, like you can see how those incentives are completely misaligned. Whereas in your case, if it's a small and medium business that's actually looking at outcomes, right, that's a waste of money. They can't afford to waste that much money. You know, for P&G, if they blew the entire two billion, it doesn't matter to them. They're so big. But for small and medium business, if they're spending sizable dollars in digital, that's meaningful, right? If they could actually do better with those dollars, invest it better, or at least cut out the waste, the obvious waste, it's going to be so much better for them. So I think that's what we can go do together and help them over the course of the next year or two years and that kind of stuff. Did you enjoy today's episode? If so, we release two new episodes per week. 
So be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else that you subscribe and listen to your podcasts. I also have a favor to ask. I'd really appreciate if you could leave a comment or review so I can learn exactly how to improve future episodes for you. And last but not least, if you want to connect with me, find me on LinkedIn by searching Brad Redding at Elevar. That's E-L-E-V-A-R. Or you can DM me on Twitter. My handle is I am Brad Redding. I look forward to connecting with you. Thanks again. Thanks again.